0: We all work hard to create just the right balance in our lives between work, spouses, our kids, church, and maybe even caring for aging parents, hanging out with friends, and so much more. Small stresses can cause big disruptions, right? Well, imagine how your life would be disrupted by a call from a detective about a cold case from 35 years in your past, a case you never thought would be reinvestigated, a case that changed your life forever. Hey everybody, welcome to The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison, and I'm going to bring you another story from the world of true crime today, and then we're going to see where it intersects with our faith. I hope then that you'll join forces with me to answer what I believe is every Christian's calling, and that's to be a different kind of PI, a person of impact. We'll talk about a practical way to do that after we dive into today's case. This is Season 3, Episode 41. The book we're going to talk about this week is soon to be published, and it's called My Name is Lisa. Our guest is its author, Lisa Saruga. Lisa is a licensed professional counselor, author, and speaker. She's also the survivor of a violent rape. So understand that we'll be talking about this very, very tough topic of sexual assault. So be sure, before you go further, you need to decide if this is a topic that you're ready to listen to. But if you can, and you want to know more about how sexual assault can affect its victims, you will not want to miss a minute of this episode. As Lisa was adjusting to helping her husband care for his elderly parents while she was working as a worship minister, she got a call telling her that police had identified the man who had assaulted and raped her decades earlier while she was still in college. Like a lot of us, Lisa had been so excited to start college, to learn to live more independently. She made friends easily, she was enjoying all her classes, but especially the music ones, and she'd found a sweet boyfriend. College life was off to an amazing start. One night, Lisa spent the evening doing laundry in her dorm and watching a movie. Her boyfriend came by later that night, and even though they didn't plan on this happening, he fell asleep on her couch. When he woke up and left, Lisa was still asleep in her room, and that meant she wasn't able to lock the door behind him. Now, that sounds like a situation that any number of us might have gotten ourselves into when we were young. According to RAINN, R-A-I-N-N, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, which is the nation's largest anti-sexual violence organization, college-age women are three to four times more likely to be victims of sexual violence than women in general. Rain created and operates the National Sexual Assault Hotline and you can look in the show notes to find that number and find some links. Please check those out and share that info with someone who needs to know that help is available. Sometime after her boyfriend left, Lisa woke to see someone looking down at her. It was a man wearing a ski mask, and Lisa began to scream and pound the wall next to her bed to try to get someone's attention. I'll spare you the more intimate details of Lisa's ordeal, But I do want to highlight that as she realized what the man wanted from her, Lisa began to pray. And not just for her own safety, she began to pray for her attacker. Now, I wish that I could tell you that those prayers resulted in the man changing his mind and simply leaving, but it didn't. He became more violent with her and Lisa became convinced that she was about to die. When the assault was over and the man left, Lisa called her boyfriend. She also reported her ordeal to the police and good for her. I cannot imagine how hard that must have been. I know it's easy to think that, oh, if you've been a victim of crime, you should just easily be able to tell the police. But you have to also understand that the evidence collection process and retelling and retelling and retelling what happened was another trauma. Even telling her parents was hard. Everything was hard. Everybody was telling her what she needed to do. And it seemed like no one was asking Lisa what she wanted to do. Because police had to take her clothes for evidence, when they drove her back to her dorm, she had to wear hospital scrubs. She felt like everyone who saw her had to know what had happened to her. Going back to her room wasn't something that she was going to be able to do, so she spent that night with friends. She did accompany the police the next day to look at her room, and was so disturbed when she found all of her belts lying scattered across the floor. Can you even imagine the additional horror that she had to have endured when it dawned on her that her attacker may have intended to use one of those belts to strangle her? With supportive friends by her side, Lisa began to try to feel safe and confident again. It wasn't easy. She could hear the people whispering about her, blaming her. She felt like the police didn't even believe her story since stranger rapes are not as common as rapes by acquaintances are. It wasn't long before they stopped investigating her case and didn't even seem like they wanted to keep the evidence they had collected. As Lisa continued to try to move forward, she saw her grades beginning to fall and her relationships getting very, very strained. And that's not uncommon at all. More than a third of all victims of reported rapes say they experience getting into more arguments and feeling like they can't even trust the people closest to them. In time, Lisa was able to graduate, and she set her sights on helping other women who had experienced what she had. She earned two master's degrees, got married, and had children. Lisa became a licensed professional counselor and a college student personnel professional, working with college students to give them what she felt she hadn't gotten in her darkest days. Sadly, her first marriage didn't last, but Lisa moved on, becoming a certified legal and ethical specialist, and often serving as an advisor to legislators on mental health issues in educational settings. She remarried, and even with the stress of caring for his aging parents, life was good. That's when she got the shocking call that the police were gonna take another look at her case, and this time, they had a suspect. We'll talk with Lisa in just a minute to learn where that call led and how it's affected her life and her faith ever since. Do you ever worry about how crime seems to be on the upswing these days? Do you want private investigator-approved safety tips so you can keep yourself, your family, and your community a little safer? Are you ready to really lean into what the Bible says over and over, and that's to fear not? If so, then be sure to follow me on social media so you'll know when my book, How to Kick Fear to the Curb, comes out. You can find me on Instagram at The Unlovely Truth Podcast, on Facebook at The Unlovely Truth. Message me on that Facebook page if you want to join my book launch team, and you'll get an early peek at the manuscript. I hope to hear from you soon, but for now, let's hear what our guest, Lisa Saruga, has to share with us. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today. I know this is not the easiest topic to talk about, but you share your experiences in your manuscript as a survivor of a very violent sexual assault and you do it to help others. And I have to just ask, is that painful for you or is it somehow freeing? The gist of my
1: story takes place over 35 years and I didn't talk about my story for 35 years. Um, But when my cold case was reopened, I really felt compelled um, that something needed to be done and others in the same situation you know, they need to hear that they're not alone. Um, and I really feel very strongly that my story demonstrates a need for legislative change and change within um, our systems. So um, at this point, I would say it's pretty empowering to share my story and to say, Here, here's where our, um, our problems are and here's what
0: we can do to fix it. When you mention legislative change, it just makes me think about. As I read through your manuscript, it was so easy to feel that in some jurisdictions, the laws are almost on the side of the perpetrators. Mm-hmm. How did that affect your healing process?
1: It was a setback. <laughs> um, you know, I, when I my case was reopened, I was convinced at first I couldn't figure out why would God let this be reopened again um, after this much time had passed. And I was convinced that it, the timing was such that I was going to finally get two things that I needed, um, justice and closure. And so there was an, an element of this is going to be the healing process that I've been looking for. Um, and what I learned is that justice doesn't look like what we think it's going to look like in this lifetime. There really are a lot of gaps and holes and and um, things that really kind of favor Um, the perpetrators of these crimes legally, and also that we really don't get closure in this lifetime. Closure is something we get in the next lifetime. And so when I found out that their justice was not going to be um, served the way I thought that it should be, um, it was was devastating at first. It was really a setback.
0: Well, I know you've spoken about your experiences and that you talk about what uh, most people call rape culture. What would you really want people to understand about that, that you think maybe most of us don't?
1: You know, I think a lot of times when we hear the term rape culture, there's almost a defensiveness, like, you know, our culture doesn't say it's okay to rape people. Um, and what what I think we need to understand is that in the 200 years plus that our country has existed, you know, our 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 constitution was set up in before we knew exactly what crime was going to look like, and then um, decisions were made over those two hundred years by the Supreme Court that set precedents that maybe doesn't doesn't help us at this point in time. And then there's legislators who are discouraged because we can't make the laws that we need to make um, to keep people safe from sexual violence because of old constitutional and Supreme Court decisions, and it it just has become this tangled mess of, it's like spaghetti. You can't sort through it. Um, And I always talk about the knots that we have developed. So, for example, um, between the federal and the state government, right now, rape is a state offense. It's handled at the state level, not at the federal level. But then we have these decisions at the federal level that prevent the state from getting from prosecuting criminals, and then, it, for example, in my case, um, when my case was reopened and the person who assaulted me was identified, he knew he had been identified. We know he's has propensity for violence, um, so I was notified that um, I had there were safety issues for me that I really needed to um, take some safety precautions. So at the federal level, there is an office of victims crime that will help with those safety precautions if the state can get a conviction, but the state couldn't get a conviction because of another federal decision that tied the hands of the state. So there's all these knots that that kind of prevent us from doing what needs to be done to stop sexual violence.
0: It's fascinating to me that you say our culture doesn't say it's okay to Mm rape. But it also feels like we don't say that it's not okay.
1: Absolutely. So I I jumped from culture to to government, but I I think what that shows is that over this, the time that we've been a country, there are things that have become a a part of our culture that we just don't even realize play into um, rape culture. Um, You know, it's, we still tend to blame and shame the victim. What did she do? Was she drinking? Was she? Did she? You know, somehow set herself up for this? Um, still, if if um, a victim goes to court, the only defense that we have is to figure out what she did wrong, and so there's going to be blaming and shaming in in those cases. We still laugh at jokes that really are about sexual violence and
0: think that that's okay. And it- Give me an example of one of those, because I think a lot of us. It- It's probably unconscious. Mm -hmm. We hear these things and we just don't stop and think what they really mean at their core. Right.
1: You know, when I think of locker room conversation um, and just jokes about women that objectify women um, and women are not the only victims here. But we make a lot of jokes about, you know, people being able to have sexual encounters as if that's just, you know, that they've championed something and uh, or won some kind of a victory. And when we put um, sex into the context of power, we're really leaning towards sexual violence there. And um, so making those kinds of jokes, laughing along with those kinds of jokes, if there's somebody with a propensity um, to commit sexual violence within earshot, we're, we're kind of giving them permission, kind of saying, oh, that's funny. Wouldn't that be funny if you did that? And um, I don't think we always understand the magnitude of our
0: joking and what impact that can have on the people around us. You became a trauma counselor, mm-hmm. I think in part because of what you went through. Mm-hmm. And tell us how we can encourage people in our own lives who have experienced some sort of trauma to take whatever steps they need to take to heal? I think that's such an important question. Thank you for asking
1: that. Um, you know, one of the things in our culture that we do is, is we've, we've determined that the it's best to call people who have experienced sexual violence survivors. And in a way that's empowering, but don't forget that they're also victims. Um, I think that the the word victim has taken a negative connotation. And when we we use that term survivor, we tend to think, oh, that person survived, they're okay. But the truth is, not all victims become survivors. It's important for them to have someone to talk to, encourage them to talk, um, encourage them that they're not alone. If somebody, if you know somebody who has experienced sexual violence, you know, offer to go with them to a counselor if they need that support. Offer to um, support them whether they choose to report or not. This is an underreported crime, and of course we want to see more people report, but reporting a crime is not easy, and going through trial is, is not easy, um, and only about two and a half percent of perpetrators go to jail.
0: So, um, I'm going to make you stop for just okay. a second and say that again, because I don't want people to miss how few violent sexual offenders are actually held accountable. Yeah. So at this point, it, they used to say that um,
1: two out of a th- five out of a thousand, so about a half percent of perpetrators go to jail. And then we had the Me Too movement. And I've heard so many people say the Me Too movement made such a great impact. And they did. That increased by, you know, four five hundred percent. But we're still only sending two and a half percent of perpetrators
0: to jail. I think that is so important for people to understand. Because as you said, yes, it is very hard to report. And that is every victim's choice. But if you're someone that's experienced that and you have not reported, I do just want to encourage you, very few offenders are going to stop at one offense. Mm -hmm. They're only going to stop when they are made to stop.
1: I also stress that, you know, reporting is not the first thing you need to do. Ideally, we report right away and we do the right test kit and we get all of the evidence. That, That would be great if everyone did that. But not everybody can do that. Um, don't be afraid to get help first. It's okay to go to counseling and and not have reported. Help is still available if you haven't gone that route. And sometimes it's easier to report once you do have those supports in place. So um, I just I don't want people to feel like you can't get help if you're not going to report it. Um, I think we tend to minimize those things that happen to us. A lot of people don't report and then convince themselves it was no big deal. Um, Sexual violence is a huge
0: deal. Yeah, let's explore that some more. Mm -hmm. Um, You obviously endured quite a bit of actual physical violence in your attack. Mm -hmm. But there's coercive violence as well. You don't have to have a perpetrator threatening you with a weapon to still be in danger. And so you're right. I think it would be easy to minimize what happened, especially if your attacker is known to you. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you were um, in some sort of relationship with this person, or even if you were just starting to date, that doesn't make it okay. Right.
1: I've talked to so many um, victims who, who kind of... Belittle their own situation because they didn't fight back hard enough, or I could have done more to get away. But you know, the natural human instinct is self preservation. And you know, yes, mine was very violent, there were weapons involved. Um, there was no way I was going to argue with him at that point. I just wanted to survive, I wanted to be alive at the end of it. That fight, flight, or freeze. Um, that's a, that's human instinct. And it's going to happen when you're terrified and it doesn't take a weapon to be terrified. You know, if there's somebody overpowering you, threatening you with words or threatening you with what, you know, whatever the situation might be, um, we still have that tendency to go to fight, flight or freeze and, um, freeze sometimes feels like the safest thing to do.
0: And it fascinates me because if you're working at a business that's robbed, mm-hmm. you are told, give the robber whatever they want, mm-hmm. don't fight back, don't be aggressive. And there have even been instances where people who did try to fight back got fired Absolutely. for violating company policy. Absolutely. And so that's what we teach. We know that that's the safest
1: route. But yet when it comes to sexual violence, we say, well, why didn't you fight back? Why didn't you scream louder? Why didn't you kick or hit them? And any of those responses could aggravate that crime to a more dangerous crime. So, yeah, it doesn't make sense, does it?
0: No, and I think part of it is just, and and obviously men can be victims of sexual violence as well, but statistically the overwhelming majority are women or females. They, They might be younger. But I think part of it is the, the way we look just as sex in our culture, and especially in the church. We look at it as shameful and something to not be talked about. Mm-hmm. And so here a woman presents herself as someone who has had a sexual encounter, but it was completely against her will. We just, we don't look at that the same way.
1: Yeah. And unfortunately, our churches shy away in many cases, from talking about sexual violence, um, when this happened to me, you know, I was I was 18 years old, so I had been an adult for six months, um, which means that you know I'm not entitled to the same rights <laughs> and protection. Um, at the time, I was um, a fairly young Christian, and I was involved in a church. But it was a church that really um, focused a lot on purity and, you know, don't have sex before marriage. I'm not saying those are wrong things, but I did not feel like I could go to my church. I was ashamed at what had happened to me. Um, And I I hear from a lot of victims that same thing that, you know, I remember wondering, am I still a virgin? (laughs) Because I didn't make that choice. But you know, my body had experienced something. And um, it's very confusing. I, you know, I, I think our churches, I would love to see our churches be more outspoken and more supportive and offering groups. And, um, you know, I'm hoping to actually write a, a six-week um, lesson that churches can do with groups in their churches because um, a lot of that doesn't exist. And yet we know one in six women are going to experience sexual violence in their life. If you walk into any church that has more than six women, chances are the issue exists in your church. And so, um, you know, I really would love to see churches open up and be compassionate in this area. I'm
0: going to make a statement that will probably make some people mad. And I kind of hope it does, because I hope it spurs just some conversation around this issue. So if what I'm about to say makes you mad, email me message me on social media and let's talk about it. I think you mentioned purity culture. And like you said, nothing wrong with that. But I think that a lot of churches have made that an idol, And it has become more important than the people that it's supposed to be serving. I agree with you. So people can
1: email me too on that. Um, You know, (laughs) I think, you know, we, we tend to focus in on sin in the Christian church. And that makes sense. Jesus died for our sins. You know, you have to, you have to understand sin to understand salvation. Um, but the condemnation for certain sins is just so strong. And, you know, I, I could go into a whole lot of other areas that are not my roadhouse, but um, anytime there's condemnation, we're not creating a safe environment for people who
0: need help in those same areas. And the Bible tells us, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you're right. We can, we can denounce sin without condemning people. Yes. Amen.
1: And, well, and, and, and I'm and not even sure that people, that it's intentional, but the way we talk about purity creates a position for, um, those who are trying to be pure to feel shame and guilt when things don't turn out that way.
0: Well, and I think too that we often forget that what Jesus addresses over and over and over is the state of our hearts. Yes. And so like you said, you participated in an experience that you had no control over. And so as far as where your heart was regarding purity, you were fine. I want to end here on a note of hope, because this has been a very, very heavy topic, but a necessary one to talk about. And you're very clear in your manuscript that what you went through has led to some positive outcomes in your life. So I want you to tell us about some of those things.
1: Absolutely. You know, I, I don't believe that God purposes for these things to happen in our lives. But I do believe that God can use all things for his purposes. And I think I had to trade in my desire for um, closure and some kind of an earthly resolution to this. Um, I had to trade that in and say, you know what, God, it happens. Um, I wasn't alone. You were there. Now, what's the point? How do? We, what's your purpose? What can we do with this? And I think God opened all kinds of doors to show me that, I can comfort others with the same comfort that I received from him. Um, you know, I was encouraged to write books on on healing and to work with others who have experienced the same type of trauma. Um, and also to go and stand before Congress in Washington, D.C. and in my home state. And, and God's opened doors for me to talk very plainly with many people that... Um, You know, we see on TV as these legislators that that look untouchable, who really, really want to hear from us and who really need to know what do we need to do to fix this. Um, So, yeah, God
0: definitely can use anything for his purposes if you let him. I want everybody who's listening to be able to know where they can connect with you so they can take advantage of all these wonderful resources that you have out there. Yes, I
1: have a website, lisasaruga.com. It's L-I-S-A-S-U-R. <laughs> I spelled it wrong. I can't spell my name. <laughs> okay, that's okay. Just start uh, over. L-I-S-A-S-A-R-U-G-A.com. And you can email me through my website. Um, you can see some of the legislative things that we're up to. Um, you can read about my my uh, black page journals and my sledgehammer Um, Yeah, there's a lot of information there. And don't miss the big
0: teal bubble (laughs) suit as well. That was my favorite.
1: Thank you. Teal is the awareness color for sexual assault. And when I speak on college campuses during um, Sexual Assault Awareness Month, I I have a gigantic um, teal puffer jacket that I wear, my friend made for me. And
0: we talk about what's the big teal. You're not going to want to miss any of the things that Lisa has to share with us. So make sure you check out the show notes. I'll have links there for you. And thank you again, Lisa, for sharing your story with us. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. As we dig into some scripture that I hope is encouraging, I certainly don't want to imply to anyone who has been a victim of sexual assault that just by reading a verse or two, everything is going to be okay. I just want these words from Isaiah 43, 2 and 3a from the New International Version to give everybody who's listening right now some comfort. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Have you ever felt like that, like you were about to drown in the waters of your life or that you were walking a path that just had flames burning all around you? Try to remember that even when the waters are at their highest and the flames are at their hottest, you're not alone. God not only sees you where you are, he tells us in these verses that he's there with us. Even if you feel like no one in your life is willing to be there for you, please be encouraged and know that God is. According to the Department of Justice, someone in America is sexually assaulted every 98 seconds. Many of these victims will struggle with post-traumatic stress disorder. And even for those of us who are not trained counselors, there are simple things we can do to help. And that's what I want us to talk about. Whoever you're talking to, encourage them to seek help. But let them know that that decision is theirs. Let them open up in their own time. And once they do... Tell them that you believe them and support them. Assure them that you know that talking about their experience must be hard. And you're honored that they trust you enough to share their story with you. Mm -hmm. Then just ask them one question. What do you need the most right now? And do whatever you can to help with whatever that thing is. That's it. It's something anybody can do. And it will make such a huge difference in the life of someone who is struggling. If you liked this episode, please check out some earlier ones. I put links in my show notes for episodes that are similar to today's because I've, just, I've had so many amazing guests who gave fantastic information that you're not gonna wanna miss out on. And please help the unlovely truth grow by sharing this episode, subscribing, and giving me a five-star rating and a nice review on Apple Podcasts. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neocortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Hyland. See you all next time. Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app.